Hey everybody, Michael Cohen here, welcoming you back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. Thank you very much for tuning into today's show. I'm recording this episode, at least the introductory part of it, on a Thursday afternoon when we have some pretty heavy rain and thunderstorms here in the Connecticut area. So if you're listening to this and you hear some rumbling in the background or maybe something that sounds like some pellets, that might be the rain bouncing off the air conditioner outside my window. But the interview was conducted in perfect sunny weather skies, so we shouldn't have any audio problems if there are any beyond the first couple of minutes. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. If you happen to be listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show, and maybe a comment with some thoughts and feedback about what we've done so far and maybe what you might like to hear down the road in future episodes. I check all the comments myself. It's really, really nice to hear some of the, the kind words that you guys have sent me, whether at whether that is through the iTunes store, as I mentioned, or perhaps on Twitter and social media and other platforms where this show is available. So I want to say thank you to everyone who has left me a note already, and I'm really excited to hopefully hear from some more of you guys in the future as we continue rolling along with Cohen's Corner. Today's guest is one of the most noteworthy, recognizable, and most talented sports broadcasters of our generation. Kevin Harlan is a name and a voice you would certainly recognize through his work with CBS, where he's broadcast the NFL on Sundays for a number of years now, multiple decades, as well as the NCAA basketball tournament every March, still for CBS. You might have heard his voice on Monday night, doing Monday night football on Westwood One Radio where he's also done 10 consecutive Super Bowls, the most of any broadcaster in the history of the Super Bowl. He also does the NBA on TNT, where he works alongside Reggie Miller. And by the time you're listening to this podcast on Monday morning or later in the week, Kevin will have already returned to Orlando, Florida to begin his second stint in the NBA bubble. He's been back and forth from his home in Wisconsin to the bubble in Orlando, doing some of the games that you've seen on TNT through the opening restart games, the first round of the playoffs, and now into the second round. Kevin got his start as a teenager, working and broadcasting games at his own high school, which now is known as Notre Dame Academy in Green Bay, but at the time was known as Our Lady of Promontory High School. He was doing basketball, football, and ice hockey before attending the University of Kansas and quickly getting enmeshed in the broadcast scene with the men's basketball program, and by the time he graduated, landed a full-time job immediately broadcasting the Kansas City Kings of the NBA, who later became the Sacramento Kings. He also spent time as the voice of the Kansas City Chiefs, the voice of the University of Missouri Athletics, football and basketball, and as well as the first ever voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves after that franchise joined the NBA as an expansion team. From there, he transitioned to full-time network jobs, as I mentioned earlier, working with Turner, CBS, and all of their affiliated properties like Westwood One Radio, And in 2017, Kevin was named National Sportscaster of the Year for the first time by the National Sports Media Association, and that's an award he won again two years later in 2019. This was a fascinating podcast because, of course, Kevin Harlan is not only one of the most recognizable broadcasters, but he has deep, deep ties to the Green Bay Packers, dating to the time when his father, Bob Harlan, was named President and CEO 
of the organization and held that role for multiple decades. So we had all kinds of insight into coaches, players, and what the rejuvenation of the Packers franchise was like throughout this show, as well as talking about life in the bubble, his process as a broadcaster, and how he goes about preparing and making sure he brings his best quality performance to every time you hear him on the radio or television. This conversation was a lot of fun, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into a discussion with sports broadcaster Kevin Harlan. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for, for taking the time to join me. It's it's really funny that you and I are recording this on this particular Thursday, because if this was a normal year, a non-COVID year, I believe tonight would be the night that you would be with James Lofton getting ready to broadcast the final preseason game for the Green Bay Packers. It's usually this week in the calendar, and of course all of that has been you know, thrown into haywire with everything happening right now. You've been back and forth from the bubble and doing all kinds of things NBA-related at this strange time, but you know, how different is it for you not having Packers preseason football this month? Michael, great to be on with you. It's weird, and you're right. It was about this time. I'm looking through my calendar as you said that because they knocked out all these dates when they canceled the NFL preseason, and it was a game. Actually, the Packers were going to play in the Meadowlands against the Giants on Saturday, and tomorrow I was going to be in Atlanta for a, a CBS national broadcast uh, with my new partner, Trent Green. So um, I was going to do games back-to-back, one in Atlanta and then one in New York, and fly back down to the NBA bubble and, and do the second round of the playoffs. So obviously all of those all of those are moving targets as of right now. There is no NFL preseason. There is no uh, NBA playoff game scheduled for the last part of the week. They're going to resume, I guess, uh, tomorrow, Friday, or Saturday, or whenever. But the, the point is, is that uh, with everything going on, it, it has been irregular. It has been, as you say, it's been like weird trying to get a handle on, well, what should I be doing? What shouldn't I be doing? What makes sense in terms of prep? What makes ter- uh, sense in terms of, of organizing travel when everything seems to be changing, it seems, hour by hour? So, you know, we're we're like everybody else, grateful to still be involved, but at the same time very unsettled because you can't plan, you know, a lot of your professional life until these other dates are set and we know for sure we know for sure there's gonna be a game and a season. My fingers are crossed for both and, and we just kinda of go day by day. You know, I wanted to ask you about the NBA bubble because I know that at the beginning of the concept of the bubble, there were a number of ideas kicked around from a media standpoint. Some involved calling games from a studio away from the bubble. Some involved being there in person. Obviously, it ended up being a situation where you and the other broadcast teams were in Orlando and you were in the arenas and things like that, albeit you know removed to a safe distance, I believe, in between that first and second deck of the arena there and with plexiglass in between, you know, some of the broadcasters, but you know what went through your mind when the decision was made for for you guys to actually be in there as opposed to potentially just doing it remotely from a studio. Well, selfishly, I guess uh, personally, and I know I've talked to some other broadcasters that are that are kind of in my same boat that do a lot of different sports for other employers. Um, in my case, it's CBS and it's it's Westwood One Radio, which is a part of CBS, and so. I was hoping that I was going to be able to kind of kind of volley back and forth. I'd be able to go into a studio where the uh, bubble concept, the quarantine, all those different elements weren't necessarily intact, and I could kind of come and go like I'm used to doing, doing a right. basketball game one night and a, 
you know, a football game the next day and, and, and doing that. So when they said we're going to Orlando, uh, I knew automatically that <clears throat> I probably couldn't do the Western Conference Finals, which I had been asked to do, as Marv Albert was not going to go down, and I was going to sit in his seat and do those because that's right in the middle of football season and because the NBA did not want us coming and going. Uh, from the bubble at that time, um, you know, that was taken off, which, you know, I was fine with. It would have been fun to do. But, but um, you know, in, in retrospect, as I look at, at what has occurred, what is happening now, and how they've tweaked it every night, every game, every broadcast, it really has been uh, remarkable how they've gotten this thing off and kept it safe and given us uh, as much of a feel of being in an arena and doing these games as you could possibly want. It's not, as you've described, our logistics and kind of the environment we're in. It's not as, 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 uh, as, as if we're on the floor, which gives you such a great feel for the rhythm of a game. You can kind of be ahead of the ball a little bit. You see things more clearly, substitutions, conversations, arguments, you know, play calls, all of, all of it that you just don't get when you're up on a mezzanine level like we are. But all that being said, the NBA has gone above and beyond, I think, what anybody thought. And the two companies that broadcast the games, TNT and ESPN, have been right there uh, in step with everything the NBA has thought of, wanted. And I'll throw in one more company, too, that has been involved, and that's uh, 2K uh, Video Games, the, the official video game of sure. the league which puts out the yearly video uh, uh, game that, that so many people play, and they have taken a lot of the special effects and crowd noise elements and all the things which make those games so terrific to play and watch on your TV at home. They have transported those to the buildings where the league is playing now, and they've given it a, a, as, as much a sense of people being there with virtual fans and noise and announcements and and. and designs around the floor, Michael, as you could possibly want. So I think everybody is in agreement that that part has, has been just spectacular. You cannot make up for not having a significant other, your family, a spouse, whatever. You can't make up for the right. lack of, of human interaction. So for the players, I'm sure that has been very, very difficult, as we've heard. So um, anyway, the, the NBA, um, I, I, I continue every day to be just amazed at how they operate and how they take one challenge and they conquer it and they go to the next one and do it, it seems, with great ease and, and so flawlessly. You know, I think sort of the, the same thing can be said of, of some of the work that, that you've done in the bubble, which is that it sounds very easy the way that you make these games kind of come to life. And while I was doing research for this podcast, I noticed a common theme in various interviews that you've given over the years, which is that, you know, you always profess your love for radio play-by-play and that that was sort of, you know, the entrance point for you and what you always wanted to do. And part of a radio play-by-play guy's responsibility is to provide more of the description, more of the color, more of the vividness, because obviously your listeners aren't seeing it. And so I'm curious if if the bubble environment at all, did you, in the bubble environment, excuse me, did you feel more of a responsibility to paint pictures for your viewers because it wasn't a traditional game? And did you approach it any differently than you would a game where they do have all those sounds and music and, you know, fan images that they see? Did it feel at all different to you in that regard? That's a great question, Michael. It did a little bit because, you know, you're in a glass booth, as you mentioned, and you're not able to kind of, you know, uh, elbow or 
or tap your partner in terms of, hey, I'm, I'm going to finish here and I'd like you to continue on. So there's a lot more sign language as we've got this plexiglass between us. A little bit more difficult to operate with the statistician. But, um, but I, I guess I have given a little bit more descriptive play-by-play because I think it fills some of the pockets of space that you would normally let a broadcast have on television with ambient noise, crowd noise, the murmur of a crowd, um, which to me has always been kind of like, I've said this many times, but like a symphony for a broadcaster. You make a call and then you kind of fade and the crowd noise comes up and fills in, backfills the call and really makes it nice and complete. You know, uh, think, for instance, the Kawhi game-winning Game 7 shot that that propelled Toronto to the Eastern Conference Finals a year ago to Milwaukee when they beat Philadelphia and the shot and how we we said what the shot meant, what the win meant, and then laid out for about a minute and a half, and the crowd just was this marvelous uh, cacophony of sound that just gave the moment presence and and a, a significance and you love those moments, what we don't have now. So you feel compelled, I think, to kind of fill in with, you know, your own call, um, you know, on a play and probably extend it a little bit more than you normally would on TV, which is one of the things, you know, there is a skill and kind of an art to broadcasting, and I don't mean to get in the weeds here on either, but with radio, your words are so impactful, your pace, your emotion that you show in your voice And some of those things, which I guess I am transplanting a bit to the TV call and where we are in kind of this antiseptic uh, laboratory that the NBA finds itself in in the restart. Whereas in TV, if I'm doing a game, you can can let all these other elements kind of be, you know, fill in. And there's an art to laying out. There's an art to sensing that you've said too much or too little or just kind of accent the picture. So I, I love both challenges. But it is probably, as you, you, you know, were assessing, slanted a little bit more toward radio because you're trying to compensate for the loss of some of these other um, natural sounds, crowd and, and just the ambient noise that a big, full arena full of emotion always takes your broadcast and frames your TV broadcast. You know, I don't mind you going into the weeds at all. One of the things I like to do on this podcast, whether I have scouts on or players, coaches, other writers, I think people, listeners in general, find it very interesting to hear how people do their jobs. And so process is a big part of what I like to explore on the, on the podcast. And when you mentioned the, the sort of nonverbal communications that you have with partners, whether it's a tap on the leg or the arm, or as you mentioned in this case, having to use some hand signals and things, you know, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to sort of the evolution of a partnership. I think people who are familiar with the NFL know that you and Rich Gannon were together for you know over a decade, and obviously people who watch the NBA know that you and Reggie Miller have been a terrific team. And you know when you have the opportunity to work with a guy consistently year after year, how does that partnership between you guys evolve and develop from where it was day one? Where I'm guessing there's probably a little bit of awkwardness the first time you guys are on the microphone together. There's a little bit, like uh, I can I can tell you the two instances, three, really, well, many, actually, now that I, I'm going through my mind, my mental catalog, but like uh, with Kurt Warner on Monday night, before that, Boomer Esiason, I, I slid into my chair, and he slid into his, and it was as if we were friends uh, from childhood, and, and there's just a very, you know, there's a lot of eye contact, there's a lot of, 
you know, animation in terms of, you know, pointing or whatever, but 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 it was just very, very easy. With Doug Collins, who I did the NBA on TNT with for seven years, and before that, Doc Rivers, and, you know, those are guys that are so into it, and, and, and you get then seduced into their great interest and, and their X's and O's and, and the, their love for the game, and, and that, I think, bonds you. Um, with Rich Gannon, I would see how he'd prepare every week and was always amazed stepping into that CBS booth on Sunday mornings and had such great respect for what he did as a player, kind of a self-made player, a late bloomer in NFL terms on the field, sure. how, how he worked so hard all those previous years to get where he was the last five or six years of his career and how I admired that and how he is really kind of, he's not naturally a gregarious or kind of, and he would, I'd say this if he were on the call with us, Michael, he's, he's not, you know, some people are just kind of warm and giggly and just kind of like that. Rich is, is, is not like that. He's a, he's a serious minded, hardworking type guy that you kind of need to coax a little bit of, of that out of him. And unfortunately, we're going to be now separated for the first time in about 10 years, and I've got a new partner in Trent Green. And, and Rich and I were kind of getting to the stage where, where he was laughing more, and it was more give and take and breezy and, and so fun. But, but still, the respect I had for him and his work and his, the preparation he put into it, I was so in awe of that that you never wanted to let him down in a broadcast. So I would like work extra hard to make sure right. that I kept pace with him. Now, I'm working with Trent Green, who I've known for many, many years, and he has more of a relaxed, even-keel style. And, and then working with Reggie, for instance, is different, because I don't know that everything to him came so naturally on the floor. Everything to him was a process of taking 753-point shots every day, that that was kind of his makeup, and I think he has learned over the years to relax and think about why did this play happen or why didn't it, you know, succeed. And, and, and so, you know, he sees things, but I don't think it was, it was, it was necessarily second nature for him to explain why it happened. Now, now I know that he knows why it happened and I know that he knows all the things that the intricacies of footwork and, 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 placement on the floor and holding the ball and where to catch the pass and where he had to have it at a specific place. But I think that, you know, some people are, are people that describe and teach and others are people that don't maybe have that come as naturally to them. And so I think we're kind of actually, it's funny we're talking about this because I thought this sleeve in the bubble after my first three weeks, and I'm going to head down there here this weekend and do the second round and, and a little bit beyond how I've noticed in listening to our games how he is more, I think, in that mode. And I'm wondering if by being off the floor and not thinking as a player and having it had uh, to him come oh, so naturally okay. when he played that now he feels he needs to explain a little bit more that he's off the floor. And I'm going to die. We haven't even talked about this because I've kind of left it at home with the kids and, and, and his wife, Lauren, and how they're you know kind of enjoying this time at home. But I am going to mention to him, I say, you know, here's what I've noticed, and what do you think? So every guy is different. Like, I could sit down, Michael, with, with Bill Raftery and do a college game and do maybe, let's say, one game a year, which we usually do about five or six for CBS. But if we sat down and just did one game, it, it, it's like I'm almost like with, I want to see my dad, but, but like a friend who I've known forever. Sure. And a person I respect, and 
like he'll laugh and he'll know like when I'm going to jump in and he'll kind of bring it back and then I'll know when he's going to jump in and I'll bring it back and it's like so like flawless and so easy and just so like like enthralling um so so guys are different all are fun I wouldn't take one guy over the other they're just kind of different now you got to manipulate and, and get a feel for and then back off or accelerate your own um own uh process and and I like that challenge. I think every broadcaster does. One of the things that I admire about your approach to the job, which I've learned through, again, reading and, and hearing various interviews you've done over the years, is how much time and effort you put into critiquing your own work and trying to find ways to get better. And, you know, I know that that sounds cliche and listeners might think, okay, everybody tries to get better. But you gave an interview, I think it was a pretty detailed Q&A with The Athletic either last year or the year before, where you talked about just how minute some of that critiquing might be. Something as simple as when James Brown comes back from a highlight in the middle of a, a, a game, when it's a game break, you know, are you responding to James Brown with the right message, the right tone, the right energy? And, you know, something as small as that, which is probably five to ten seconds of what amounts to a three-hour broadcast, you know, that you focus so deeply on that, I think speaks to probably, you know, at least in part, why you've had so much success. And, you know, for me as a writer, I find that when I go back and read some of my stories, I can find a single word or phrase that, man, I wish I had a chance to do it over. And it, it almost like it, it's like an itch, like it bothers me that much. When you f hear something on a broadcast and, and it was a moment or a second that you wish you could do over, do those things still gnaw at you even at this point in your career, given the thousands of games you've called? Yes, uh, even more so, because I know that, that as opposed to when I was 25 or 30, you know, I had this long journey ahead of me and knew that there was year of year after year of processing and 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 using off seasons and but now i've got maybe 10 to 15 years left and kind of for the first time especially during you know the stoppage of play and, and so much time to kind of think about what you've done where you are where you want to go next how you want to improve you you think about man it's, it's not like i've got you know 30 more years left in the business i've been doing it um, as of right now, when I started when I was about 14, 15, so I've been in the business about 45 years, and, and it's gone by in the blink of an eye, and I, I keep thinking about, okay, how do I want you know this next, this final quarter, this, this fourth quarter of my career to go? How do I want to have it framed? How do I want to you know, make sure that I'm better and staying you know, pace with these great young voices that are coming up how can i improve and so i never want to look in the mirror and say man i wish i would have spent more time critiquing or i wish i would have spent more time getting ready for the game like I'd, i've never said i don't think i've ever said i wish i would have spent more time reading note-taking preparing that i think i've I, I feel pretty certain of but what i guess i i beat myself up for a little bit more is that I, I didn't realize maybe earlier that I should have taken this approach in a broadcast, used this tenor of voice, uh, had this kind of style, backed off, accelerate, whatever it might be. But I guess that's what comes uh, over the years of, of doing it. You know, experience is such a big factor. And, and just like a little thing, for instance, the other day somebody sent me something for when, when I was at Fox and I was doing the Packers against the Patriots in Foxborough, in the old stadium, pre-Robert Kraft. Right. And this was back in like 90, late 90s sometimes. I had just joined Fox, and Jerry Glanville and I were doing a game. 
and um, it was Favre and the Packers against like what Bloodsoe or whoever was quarterback in the Pats, and and I, I somebody had sent me the clip of the the entire game, and and so I started to watch it, and I was just amazed. For instance, at things like, man, I talk fast, or man, I sounded young, or man, there was no resonance in my voice, or wow, I'm surprised that I did this or did that, and just how the years in the business bring a more relaxed, deeper uh, presentation to your call and a a calmness and a a you know a, more of a thoughtfulness to the way you know you present your yourself and. And but I think maybe we all feel that maybe you as a young writer, when you look back when you're in your early 20s and breaking in the business and beginning, you know, uh, and, 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 and how you, you know, would would frame a story or, or analyze a thing and how you wanted to come out of the, you know, the headline with a great first line that would grab the reader's attention or right. how maybe you now save that line for the end of your first paragraph or the beginning of the second, whatever, whatever it might be like you just think of these small things you know i i do tell people it is a science i think in any performance business whether you sing or act or 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 you broadcast you know anything that requires something using your own uh, you know your 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 body your tools your mind your voice your eyes whatever it might be there is a there is a skill set there that that you sharpen over the years and polish off and and while I love the challenge, I, I say to myself, why didn't I think of that when I was 40? Like, <laughs> where was that when I was 27? Like, why didn't I think of that then? And I had, you know, big league jobs when I was 22. So I was, like, doing NBA when I was 22, and, and, I, and I, you know, cringe sometimes at the way I sounded. But maybe everybody – I did listen to something that Nance and even Al Michaels did as a young broadcaster and how different they sound now – you know, at this stage of their careers than when they were in their mid-20s. And I guess that's just, that's life, and that's the voice that God gave you and the mind that he gave you and the perceptions and the filter that he gave you uh, and, and how that changes and, and does whatever it does the older you get. And, and so I guess that process I need to appreciate uh, perhaps a little bit more. One of the things that I've noticed about writing, and I don't know if it necessarily translates when a reader, you know, reads my stories, but I always feel that if, if I'm in a period of, of my life, be it a month, two months, whatever, where I'm reading a lot of books or newspapers or whatever, that I feel like it, it elevates the level of my writing. The more I read, the better I write for whatever window of time you want to look at. And I'm curious from, from your standpoint... If I know there's probably some vocal fatigue and maybe even just some general fatigue because of all the travel you do, but if you have three, four, five games in a row, do you start to feel sharper by the end of, of a long stretch of games as you know compared to when maybe when you have a, a couple weeks off and you're getting back into it after a vacation or something? Well, I love what you just said there because I, you know, I chuckled because I'm the same way. Like I'll read a lot or, or, or whatever, and then for whatever reason, it's like I come back and and, you know, I'll start to maybe even use a little bit of the style of the book I've just read, which I don't even know where that comes from. It's so weird. But I guess you're always trying to learn and, and, and reel in things that you admire in others. So maybe all of us in this business, whether you're writing as you do, broadcasting as I am, uh, maybe there's a little bit of, of, of all that we've watched and seen and listened and read over the years that come up with this mosaic of what we are now and 
you know, the, it's like these coaches that you and I have covered for years. They say, well, I think there's no original ideas. It's just borrowing bits and pieces along the way of other guys you've coached with and tape you've watched of other teams and other coaches and other styles. And so I guess there's, there's something to be said about writing and, and broadcasting in that regard. I would tell you that for whatever reason, and I cannot, this, I don't know why, that I'm less sharp, I think, after a rest and more sharp if I've got five and six days, if I've got seven games in nine days and I've had to travel. I don't, I think your voice for whatever reason has kind of hit that, that range where if you're doing it consistently day after day, you're not searching for that speed gear, that pace gear that at least for me becomes like huge because I always tell myself once I find that speed gear, everything else in my broadcast kind of falls into place and if you haven't done it for a couple of weeks or if like I'm doing Green Bay Packer preseason games and I haven't done it all summer, trying to find that gear becomes like a multi, multi-game uh, purpose for me, process of trying to figure out the right cadence I need and tonality I've got to have as I go into my regular season CBS work and for, for the radio games on Monday. So I guess I, I think I'm... I'm, I, my voice fatigue, I, I don't really go through that for whatever reason. I'm, I'm very cautious when I go day-to-day, game after game, and I, I rest it when I need to and don't do like podcasts, for instance, when I'm that night supposed to do a game. But when I've got multiple games and multiple days, I, I seem to find my stride quicker and the gear I need to be in quicker than when I'm um, you know, absent from the microphone for a for a week or whatever. But what I do find is when I do have a lengthy time off and I've watched other broadcasters or read some books or whatever, I find myself, I, I don't know, subconsciously kind of channeling, you know, something they may have done. If I watch a Tirico, uh Olympics thing in the summer or, a, or, or whatever, you know, I go, I, I may use, you know, something that he said or right. a way or a phrase to, to, uh, to get back into it, which I think is weird. And I'm not trying to plagiarize. It's just, I think you have such respect for so many in our business that you can't help but try to take have your own take on something they've done very, very well. One of the things that I, I like to do on this podcast is when people that I'm interviewing have had the opportunity to be around a particularly excuse me, particularly memorable season, moment, player, whatever, I like to get their their point of view on it because I think People like to relive those moments and hear them from vantage points that they may not have at the time. So I picked out a couple moments throughout your career that I I think are really interesting and I'd like to to ask you about them. The first is the 1993 Kansas City Chiefs season. And I know you've spoken about this before with the Chiefs website and things, but that's a year where Marty Schottenheimer is coach. uh, Joe Montana, some guy that people may have heard of, comes in to play quarterback that year. Marcus Allen, another guy people might have heard of, comes in to play running back that year it's a staff that includes a young Mike McCarthy and a couple of years prior it had Bruce Arians Bill Cower Tony Dungy even Russ Ball the Packers salary cap manager this was before he got into the salary cap side he was the assistant strength and conditioning coach so that 93 season when a guy like Montana comes in and a coaching staff with so many guys that are going to be head coaches themselves what, what did that feel like in the moment well, the heavy lifting had been done by the Chiefs when Carl Peterson and Marty came in together in 1989. Uh, for me personally, it was that they retained the broadcast booth, which was me, Hall of Fame quarterback Len Dawson, and a longtime Kansas City broadcaster Bill Grigsby. 
So they had done these focus groups, and when they came in, they basically cleaned house, and they changed the culture. They wanted to change everything. And one of the things that was most prominent because of all the blackouts and even home games prior to their arrival was a lot of the radio broadcasts were heard, and that was the only way people were getting Chiefs news. And I was in my mid to late 20s at the time. I thought, well, that was a, that was a nice uh, little three- or four-year ride I just had, but it may be gone now because – Everyone was thinking, what am I going to do next now that these new guys are coming in? So we were able to keep our jobs and calls from Carl Peterson and Lamar Hunt to my home with a young family and my wife um, were like things that to me stand out so much. So fast forward to the Reclamation Project and Steve DeBerg and Christian Okoye and rebuilding the Chiefs brand and becoming playoff ready. But, but maybe missing that superstar status to the 1993 season. And here's Montana, as you mentioned. Here's Marcus Allen, as you mentioned. And here's this team with the smattering of Pro Bowl players among them. And, you know, when Montana puts on that uniform and comes out for that first preseason game, the buzz in that stadium was something I had not heard before. Now, I was around when they were winning on Monday night, 91, and the the, the different chants that the Arrowhead Stadium is known for became very prominent. But when, when Montana stepped on the field wearing number 19, it was a completely different sound, the sound that I had never heard in that stadium. And then we progressed through the season. And remember, he was hurt for a while, and David Craig was his backup yep. and another big-name veteran quarterback who came through when Montana was injured. And so all these things were kind of, you know, intersecting at the same time. Then they finally win their first playoff game on the road. That was at the Astronome against the Houston Oilers. Now the Tennessee Titans. I mean, there were so many moments, you know, flying back on the charters. And, and they, I used to sit between Len Dawson and Bill Grigsby. Now, Len's about the age of my dad. And Bill Grigsby was, was not old enough to be Len's dad, but, but not far away from being Len, Len's late father's age. And, and so here I am, you know, like 20, whatever I was right. at the time, and between these guys and, and, uh, and Montana, you know, not having a great deal of knowledge of guys on the team, but respect certainly for the players that were there and the staff and Carl Peterson making the trade with San Francisco to bring him to Kansas City. You know, he'd come to the back of the plane where they kept the broadcasters, and here would come, you know, Joe walking down the row and saying hi and cordial. But then he would sit on the arm seat of the plane, and Len was on the aisle. He would sit across from Len, and, and I was privy to like these conversations of these two Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Wow. Because only Len Dawson would understand, and only Joe Montana would in turn understand, you know, when they would start talking what it was all about. And even someone like Bill Grigsby who was next to me and name nationally wouldn't mean too much, but he was kind of like the Van Miller, the, the long time voice of the team in some capacity since they left Dallas and came to Kansas city in 1963. He had been part of all those broadcasts, all those years, part of the Super Bowl years, Hank Stram and, and Len when he played. And so, you know, he had this depth of, of history with the team and the city and, and here I am stuck between these guys and listening to the stuff. And, and somehow, maybe a surprise, Michael, a bottle of wine would somehow work its way onto the, <laughs> onto the plane. And you don't would say. Reach, <laughs> he would reach in his duffel bag and bring out the bottle. And, and, uh, and you know, we'd be in the back of the plane. Here's Joe Montana and Len Dawson, you know. And so that was just such a wonderful time. And 
the big plays, the wins, the AFC championship game were kind of crashed down as Joe got an early game concussion, but, but they had, they had hit the launching pad and taken off and they were well on their way to being a dominant team in the nineties. And Joe was the beginning of that. So being with him, I, w- I will retell just a, a personal note. Sure. My wife and I, right around the holidays, were at a steakhouse on the Country Club Plaza, which is kind of a nice uh, retail area with nice restaurants. And and um, um, we were having dinner with some friends. And Joe Montana was also there with his wife and a group and at a table, you know, kind of in, in, away. But some t- somehow he may have... In fact, now that I think back on it, I think he had walked in with his wife, Jennifer, and they had said hello to Ann and I, my wife, and then gone on to their table, and about midway through our dinner, a bottle of wine comes over and said, Mr. Montana would like to um, offer you this bottle wow. of wine. And and, uh, and 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 I said, oh, my gosh. And so then we reciprocated, sent him one, kind of a final final for him and his group. So anyway, so that was, uh, I get a smile on my face when I talk about that, because that was such a wonderful time and a big season, and Kansas City was back kind of playing with the big boys in the NFL, and Montana was, was the reason why. But just to have the limited um, exposure to him was something that I'll, I'll remember, and I'm sure one of the reasons why you asked the question. And Marcus the same way. Marcus was more fun-loving, though. He was kind of, kind of goofy and, and kind of fun. And, and then we had worked together a little bit at CBS in the days after. And, and I didn't think he remembered much about me, but he remembered a lot about me, and that made it, you know, I, I thought, wow, here's this Hall of Fame, you know, larger than life running back who was, you know, part of that successful season and 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 a, a, a very welcome, warm memory in my as I go back and walk through that time. Certainly, the the second moment I want to ask you about comes about five years later or so when you know at this point you are the voice of the Minnesota Timberwolves and this is a franchise that came into existence in '89 and I believe you were there right away as the first voice of the team and this is as an expansion team a franchise that had a number of very, very high lottery picks year after year. And unfortunately, up until 1995, which is the moment I want to ask you about, didn't really hit on any of them. Felton Spencer, Luke Longley, Christian Leitner, Isaiah Ryder, Pooh Richardson, Danielle Marshall. There's some very solid (laughs) role players in that mix, but not a cornerstone of a franchise. And then 1995 comes around, and they draft a guy out of high school named Kevin Garnett, and that first year they finish a couple of games below 500 with Garnett in the second year, which I think might have been your last, or maybe it was your third, with the, uh, the excuse me, the third after Garnett, uh, they make the playoffs, and Flip Saunders comes in and turns everything around. Stephon Marbury arrives. And so, you know, I think the idea of drafting a player that becomes the face of a franchise and what it means and what the buzz is like is fascinating. So what do you recall about what was happening when Kevin Garnett finally turned the tide for the Timberwolves? There's nothing like, Michael, being a part of the climb from the bottom up. I did it with the Chiefs, and then, as you said, with Montana, kind of brought it you know, to, to its highest level, um, certainly until the Super Bowl championship season they just had. But, but the team was so bad. The Chiefs were so bad. I remember for some games they'd have like under 15,000 fans wow. in massive Arrowhead Stadium. So being a part of that, going through the – transformation and seeing the team succeed and become prominent with the hall of fame quarterback was just like such a great experience. And then the same with the Timberwolves took a little bit longer, but I was the original voice in 89, moved our family up there and then actually had moved back to Kansas city after a year. And because my wife is from uh, Oklahoma and Texas, 
We, we were happier with our family in Kansas City. Um, when she woke up one morning and saw snow on the ground in June, she said, Kevin, we may have to get back. <laughs> but so, but then I commuted every day for the next eight years of my time with the Timberwolves. So it was a labor of love and a little bit of a reach to make it work, but I never regretted one second of it and was, was proud to be a part of the transformation there. I remember when Kevin McHale and the late Flip Saunders had gone to Chicago to see workouts of all the kids coming in the draft, college kids, except for this high school kid from Chicago named Kevin Garnett. And I remember the story clearly Kevin saying as he and Flip were driving back to O'Hare to go back to the Twin Cities after watching the workout and in the conversation uh, after they had watched the workout said, we got to draft this guy. I think they had the fifth overall pick that year when they drafted Kevin in, in 95 and and they had said, yep, that he was the best. He has the best upside on and on. And then he said there was a pause as they're driving out to O'Hare, and he and he said, can you believe? They looked at each other. Can you believe um, as we take over as coach and GM that we're going to stake our professional reputations on some 17-year-old high school kid, which of course no one had been drafted out of high school in years. Right. So I think Bill Willoughby back in the 70s. But now that that was a possibility, and by the way, you should know that, as you know and our listeners should, that Kobe Bryant was drafted the next year by the Hornets, then traded by Jerry West to the Lakers for Vladi Divac. Yep. So Garnett kind of lit the fuse and came in, and after that first year was so successful and the upside was so obvious that other teams, in, in fact, the great mind of Jerry West saw I guess high school kids can make that leap from high school to the NBA. Garnett ushered him in, and Kobe was the second pick after Kevin. So, so Garnett gets there, and 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 you know one of the nice stories about his rise in those three years. My last year was in '98. Was that he had these 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 mentors, and they came in different forms. One was the owner. One certainly was Kevin McHale. One was a player named Sam Mitchell kind of a journeyman guy, but a guy that was married with a family. He had four young daughters and and was kind of the elder statesman on the team, but gravitated toward Kevin. I think unofficially was designated as the guy that Kevin would go to on the team. Terry Porter was a part of that process. And then there were two music moguls in that very vibrant, music-rich city of Minneapolis uh, named Jimmy Jam Harris and Terry Lewis, who were the producers of Janet Jackson's great music, and Alexander O'Neill, and all these wonderful, uh, you know, uh, the, the time, and a bit with Prince, and like, so all this great creative music was coming out of the Twin Cities at the time, and these two guys were kind of at the heart of it, but they were fathers themselves. They were married men um, in their 30s, and they took Kevin under his wing. So, Kevin Garnett, as a high school kid, was never left to dangle. He was never left to to just kind of be out there on his own, and for lack of a better phrase, uh, thrown to the wolves. Like he was playing for the Timberwolves, but these men, these men, these mentors, black and white both, uh, watched him, uh, you know, answered questions from him, guided him, were there every step of the way. And that's why he became the man that he was, because he didn't have a father growing up in Chicago. His mother had moved the family out of South Carolina to Chicago uh, to have a new start. 
and and but but he had to act almost as a father himself to his younger sister. So now that these men kind of filled in that role, um, that was huge for Kevin's development and huge for the man he became and the person that he is today. So, you know, it was a process. And and no great story is just happening on its own. A great story always has, you know, these wonderful characters spaced along the way that somehow touch the lives of, uh, and the life of this person who we're focusing on. So for Garnett, it was the culmination of all these experiences, all these great mentors, the perfect situation. They let his high school friends travel with him on a plane. That wow. didn't happen in the NBA. And and his buddies, I remember after games in Minneapolis, we get on the charter to fly to the next night's game and wherever, and these kids would come out with these bags of McDonald's that they would get. <laughs> they'd stop at McDonald's from the Target Center to the airport, in between they'd stop at McDonald's, and they come with the bags, and, and they came in not to eat by themselves, they came in and offered McDonald's to like to all these great players on the team. That's uh, and, amazing. And all these NBA veterans, I know it, it was great, um, but, but they, the, 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 these mentors, the organization saw that we got to make him comfortable, we got to make him confident, we got to make him you know, he needs to grow up around kids his own age at the same time as these mentors right. are putting their hands on his shoulder. And so they let his high school buddies, a couple of them, three of them, um, you know, travel with the team. And that was another, you know, stroke of genius because it aided in this great story that was that was Kevin Garnett, who's, by the way, now going in the Naismith Hall of Fame. Absolutely. That's, I can't, you know, that's, that's one of the things that I think sometimes everybody forgets and, and myself included sometimes when you're covering these young athletes is just because they have achieved, you know, being drafted into the NBA, the NFL, whatever, it doesn't mean they're adults yet. It just means that they have tremendous athletic ability and talent and physical uh, traits. And so a lot of them have to have to go through a maturation process. And certainly coming from high school to the professional ranks is is an even bigger jump than that. But it's important to keep in mind sometimes that, you know, I I don't think I really felt like I was a, a true full-grown adult until I was 24, 25 years old. And all of a sudden, this guy's in the league at 18, 19. It's a, it's a big, big jump. And we have to sometimes remember that. That's a really good point. The, the third moment I want to ask you about, I was torn between two. And one was the first time you had an opportunity to call a Super Bowl, and that was Super Bowl 45, where the Packers happened to be in it, which I'm sure, and I know, because I read articles online, you spoke about the personal meaning that had for you from both a career accomplishment and also given your family's ties to the Packers organization. So I decided to pivot off that, but kind of stay in the same vein. And I'm wondering what it was like for you at Super Bowl 31 to see your dad capture a Super Bowl for the first time and to see what it was like for him to reach the pinnacle and just kind of observe all the emotions and hard work finally paying off at a point in time when you're still in that business and you're you're broadcasting yourself and you're you're familiar with the NFL and everything but what did it mean to see your dad reach that pinnacle in Super Bowl 31 when Brett Favre defeated the Patriots in New Orleans well, that was a wonderful moment, and I was there as a fan, um, and, and then just give a few seconds to the, the time that I actually called them beating Pittsburgh and Dallas. Um, that was such a remarkable run as well, but the culmination of what my dad did to kind of keep the Packers solvent. Uh, people don't realize, but there's no owner. 
Um, it is only on their own wits, uh, their own marketing, uh, their association with the NFL, that the Packers are what they are. There is no owner with deep pockets. There is no Jerry Jones or Robert Kraft. There is a seven-man executive committee. There's a president who heads up that executive committee, a CEO. That was my dad for 21 years. And so uh, the treasurer came into him one time uh, late in the 90s and said, we're going to probably go broke in the next two years if something isn't done to the stadium. We cannot survive. We can't compete with free agency. We can't do any of the things all these other teams are doing with new stadiums. We're going we're gonna to be in, in the red. And so that's when the seeds of this revamped Lambeau Field came uh, uh, into play and division. And so the, the, I, I think he would say, well, the Super Bowls were phenomenal and the hiring of Ron Wolf and the hiring of Mike Holmgren, then the subsequent hiring of Ted Thompson and Mike McCarthy, yep. who also won a Super Bowl, to hire two Super Bowl-winning general managers and two Super Bowl-winning head coaches is a pretty big feat that not many owners uh, or in that position can say they've done. And, and that is a source of pride for my dad, but also the renovation of Lambeau Field to make it a money-generating um, uh, entity where they could have a, a year-round presence. It would become a destination. You know, those were just such wonderful, wonderful moments from him and, and great career accomplishments. But when they beat... Uh, Parcells and the New England Patriots with Brett Favre as quarterback uh, in New Orleans at the Superdome. It, it was, you know, it was just like this. It was almost surreal because you had seen the celebration, the confetti so many times, and standing up on the on the podium by so many wonderful, well recognized owners and head coaches and players over the years. That to see my dad up there was just like so strange, right? And 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 uh, just just very surreal. Um, and then, and then at the end of the game on a warm New Orleans evening, uh, the teams uh, and their fans and families all kind of worked their way through the stands and and out the the exits of the Superdome to the waiting buses uh, for the families. And the buses that we were we were late to get there, but we were with my dad along the journey through the uh, stadium and out to the transportation. Uh, the buses were full. And uh, my brother Brian, I think, was the one who said, you know, we should just walk back. And it wasn't that far through the quarter, and there was a gridlock anyway of cars to get out of there. And so my dad said, sure, which surprised us. So my dad and my brother Brian, who's younger by me for 22 months, and my dad walked the three of us through uh, the crowd. And some people recognized him and some didn't. Um, And the ones that did were very, you know, uh, supportive and enthusiastic and cheering, and that was fun. Um, and as we're kind of working our way through various alleys and streets and zigzagging our way back to the Monteleone Hotel where the Packer uh, uh, party was going to be, the celebration party of, of winning the Super Bowl, um, uh, we, had, we had come across in, in kind of a nook of a kind of an older-looking alley, um, this group of Packer fans uh, that were tailgating and certainly enjoying the revelry of a win. Sure. And, and there were many people there, and even in the darkness of a New Orleans evening, as as we kind of rounded the corner and began our way down this alleyway, um, someone had spotted my dad and yelled out, "Oh my God! There's you know Bob Harlan," and and the place erupted. It was it was uh, you know it sent it seemed like hundreds of people, but it was probably maybe a little bit less, or right around that number of one hundred. 
but it was big and it was multiple uh, uh, tables and, and tons of fans in Packer uh, green and gold beads and hats and painted faces. And, you know, at this late hour in New Orleans, on what might necessarily not, might not be a very safe little alley to go down, here we were walking down and the celebration pouring out of the dome to this particular position, and they just, they just circled him and embraced him. And Brian and I, my brother, kind of backpedaled a bit, and Brian had had a couple of cigars in his, in his coat, his sports jacket pocket, and so we were actually smoking cigars and kind of leaning against <laughs> his post, looking across the road of the small alley into this corner, which was old brick and old New Orleans building background, and all the Packer green and gold lights and, and all the decorations and all the you know revelry that was that celebration. And, and he was there for about 20 minutes signing autographs and taking pictures. And, and that, I think, kind of really brought it home to him. More than being on the platform with Paul Tagliabu and, and more than, than, than looking at in the eyes of Ron Wolf and Mike Holmgren and Brett Favre, all parts of the people that, that he was a part of bringing – to Green Bay, trading for Favre, hiring Holmgren, and and, and really the the, the, the the linchpin was Wolf. Um, you know, I think more than even that uh, was was being amongst the fans who he always had this great association with. Whether it was answering his own phone, he never had a secretary that 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 screen calls. If you called the Packer front office, if you called their main line and said Bob Harlan, please. Uh, it would go right to his desk, and nine times out of ten, he would pick up. And, That's and, amazing. And certainly if he were in his office, he would pick up. Uh, he didn't have anybody saying, uh, you know, Office of Bob Harlan, how can I help? No, he picked up his own <laughs> phone. He just felt that, you know, he was in a position not of of owner with, with all the errors that may come with that and all the pageantry and platform that may come with. He He thought, I'm really just holding the keys to the car. I've got my hand on this massive steering wheel that is Packer Nation, that is this Packer history. I, I'm a caretaker. I'm not, I'm not in charge of anything except to make sure that Packer fans, stockholders, feel like they are being heard. And part of that was taking these calls and answering his own letters, not a form letter. He would either handwrite or he'd type himself on an old typewriter responses to all these letters, and everybody was answered. And so he, it, was, it was different. So when he was out among the fans and away from the, 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 the lights of that broadcast and, and the, the, you know, under the spotlight of the middle of the Superdome and the, uh, and the confetti of a celebration of a Super Bowl title, it was more about being among the people that he talked to literally every day of his, of his Packer presidency. And that was what really hit home, I think. I speak for my brother on this. Uh, in that in that Super Bowl win, that that's what stood out. That he was with the people that he felt he served. You know, sometimes we have an opportunity to hear from a coach's wife or or a child or a family member, and and they express some of the nerves that they feel on behalf of the big decisions that they're 
their husband or father or family member has to make about, you know, um, cutting a player or making a specific play call or, you know, sometimes messing up your timeouts and costing a team a game. And we hear that the, the about the nerves and anxiousness that they feel for that family member. And I'm wondering if you and your brother, when, when big decisions were made and, and your dad was, you know, making a choice like firing Tom Bratz and hiring Ron Wolf or, you know, deciding to, to hold a stock sale in 97 after they hadn't done that in a few decades or, you know, taking the GM power away from Mike Sherman and deciding to hire uh, Ted Thompson in 2005. What were you feeling as a, as a family member to somebody who was in this position of great responsibility every time these massive, you know, potentially franchise altering uh, decisions were made? And your dad was obviously a, a key leader and, and part of them. Well, because he instilled in us on, on how to make decisions in life, whether it's um, buying a home or taking a job or or deciding to get married, whatever it might be, I think that you know he instilled in us that that you do your thorough due diligence and you don't rely on anybody else. You you may ask other people their opinion, you may you know uh, uh, counsel with people that 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 need that part of the process. But no, at the end of the day, you're pulling the trigger. You're the person making the decision. It, it stops on your desk. And so because he had always instilled in us, make sure that you thoroughly vet everything in your life, the big decisions, the small ones that you're going to do. Make sure that you're thorough and make sure you, you, know, you sleep on decisions and make, before you make them. Make sure that, that you do all these boxes checked up and down your list of of what's important, what needs to be prioritized, what needs to be a consideration, whatever it might be, because we were brought up that way and conducted our own lives that way and watched him operate that way every day that we were in his house. Um, I felt like every decision he made was one that was so thought out, so well-planned, knew how he would respond to the criticism, knew how he'd respond to you know, uh, different issues that may arise with that decision, that, that he was so prepared. It wasn't knee-jerk. There was nothing that just happened, you know, just off the cuff. It was always, I mean, this, he's incredibly, incredibly conservative. And my mom will roll her eyes all the right. time. Well, you know, Mr. Conservative over here. But, but I think because the base, Michael, was set with how he approached the job of being CEO and president and how he conducted his professional life, because we saw every step and all the things that went into every single decision that he made when we were at college and he made decisions, we were in our business lives and with families and he made these decisions, and we saw it from afar. Um, We knew that he had thought about every conceivable angle, every possible turn or twist of that road that may um, you know, uh, come for him as he traveled down it. I, I just think that, that there was such confidence in his process right. that, that we never really questioned anything he did. And listen, uh, as you say, you know, hiring Ron Wolf not at the end of the season, but, you know, at Thanksgiving. So his thought process there was, I want the new GM to come in and know what he's inheriting, not what he thinks he is inheriting when the team is disbanded and left for the off season, when he can't see the coaches in their natural setting coaching, when he looks at that scouting department and sees how they actually scout. I think he felt, my dad felt that I got to get a guy in here who's test driven the car, 
who knows where the turns are, who's seen the roadmap, who has his own thoughts on where to go, but has to see what he's what he's going to inherit. And, you know, that just doesn't happen. It always happens after the season, when everybody is gone. Right. When, I guess, some owners feel we'll, we'll come in with kind of a laboratory setting, a pristine situation, a blank canvas, and then he can paint his own thing. I did want to see, you know, where the artist was and how far he was along in this painting and what needed to be changed, what colors needed to be added or taken off or, or whatever. So I, I, I think that was like such a smart move. And, and, then, and then trust. I think he felt that when he found somebody that he could trust, that trust was implicit. That trust was, was never to be questioned, even when it was hard to trust. Like when he came, when Ron Wolf comes into my dad's office, um, actually did it at Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta after watching Favre warm up on the field as a backup that, that was incredibly disappointing for the Atlanta Falcons. And, and, uh, and, and Ron Wolf comes up to my dad and sits next to him in that press box and settles into that chair and says, well, I, I, just, I think I found our next quarterback. And, and my dad had to look at the guy, well, who? Like, and, and he said, uh, you know, that number, that number four down there. And, and my dad said, Brett Favre, and of course they mispronounced his name at the Favre is what they, right. I, 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 they, they mispronounced his name when he was drafted by Atlanta. And, and then, you know, my dad having to go in uh, with Ron Wolf and say, we're going to trade our draft choice, our number one draft choice. In fact, it may have been two, but our number one draft choice for the backup quarterback at Atlanta, who I went down and watched uh, on the field the other day and still has the same zip in his arm. And I, I'm going to, and the, the executive committee said, what are you talking about? We're not going to trade a number one draft chip for, for a backup quarterback. <laughs> and my dad had to ask uh, Ron Wolf to leave the room and, and went in there and, and, and said, this is how we're doing business now. This is how we're, we've got to do business. Now we cannot make football decisions in this room. We need a guy that we trust. And I trust this guy after vetting, Many, many people. I mean, I saw the list of people he was looking at for general manager. I saw that list. I knew that he had all these different ideas, and he had a couple of people in the league that he trusted that he that he would run things by. Right. And 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 that was really big to him that that he could have these confidants, names that you would know that he trusted when they said, "Bob, watch out for this guy." But if if I were in your shoes, I think I'd look at him. And that just was another name on my dad's list that he would vet. So Ron Wolf had been on my dad's radar for years, and just the opportunity had never come to, to, to pass where the, everything seemed to mesh at the right point. But it did when he hired him, and then the rest is history. They, he hired uh, the same way he hired Ted Thompson is the same way he hired uh, Ron Wolf with, with due diligence and thorough vetting. And then they hired Mike McCarthy the same way they hired Mike Holmgren. The uh, same process. So that that was so fun to watch, and I never I never questioned. There were times when he hired people that again he used that, and, and every decision is not perfect. And there were certainly some on his plate that weren't, and no one bats a you know a, a, a thousand. But it, 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 overall, to hire two different GMs and two different head coaches and both having one Super Bowls under your watch was was a pretty I think a pretty good uh, win for him and his column. 
Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And, you know, not only that, but just the, the, the turnaround. I mean, you talked about, you know, being along for the ride in Kansas City and Minnesota, and there's nothing better than going from the bottom to the top. Well, you know, anybody who was a fan of the Packers into the 70s and 80s would know that that was a bottom to the top operation as well. And to, to reach that pinnacle was certainly a, a dramatic turnaround for a franchise that had, had been, you know, quite frankly, wallowing for quite some time. So there's no doubt about the uh, the impact that your dad had on the franchise. And the, the last question I'll have for you here before I let you go is, is kind of a fun one. And for somebody who has achieved as much as you have, whether that's, you know, calling Super Bowls, Final Fours, NBA games, you know, you name it, um, is there still some kind of a sporting event out there, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a World Cup, the Olympics, uh, the Stanley Cup? Is there something out there that, you know, if broadcast didn't matter and you could go and choose whatever event you wanted that that would pique your interest or you think would be a, a fun challenge for you if you could really just choose any assignment you wanted a couple years ago the boston red sox were having a a, a guest play-by-play person in their booth the red the radio broadcast they were between hires and they were going to take a year to really kind of think about it and so during that time, they had a season where they would invite people in. Sean McDonough came in, and Sean, by the way, is doing some radio for him right now, and a very good friend of mine. Uh, Chris Berman from ESPN went in. They had a variety of people go in. And at the Super Bowl, before that summer, they had asked me, we're doing this, we'd love you to pick any series, home or away, any series you want to do radio play-by-play for the Boston Red Sox. Well, I would tell you that outside the St. Louis Cardinals, the Red Sox are probably my I love the city, I love the history sure. of both, But and I had a chance to do the Cardinals when I was a younger broadcaster, but didn't uh, for a variety of reasons, even though I was offered a chance to work with Jack Buck and, and Mike Shannon, which I would have really enjoyed that. I think radio baseball, having listened to the great voices, the Mel Allens, the Red Barbers, the Vin Scullys do radio over the years, I think that challenge would have been great I think we, we, you know, right now, I think a lot of radio broadcasters in all sports are probably too much TV-centric, and I I guess I've always been infatuated and have held dear, you know, making sure that the smallest detail is is not left untouched, that I mention it somehow in the broadcast, uh, catching a football looking up into glaring lights, you know, with the eye black under his eyes, you know, whatever. You know, I just think those little details, and as I go back and listen to Scully and Barber and Allen and, and Ernie Harwell, these great radio baseball broadcasters. I hear such detail in their broadcasts from the 40s and 50s before TV really took over. And I always thought, wouldn't that be fun to go to, like, the Fenway Park and do that? So I thought about it for a long time over the spring. But the problem was to get ramped up in baseball during my two months of off time to devote that kind of energy would have taken time away from my family. Right. And while I would have loved every inning of radio play-by-play at Fenway Park. And I could pick, I could pick a Yankee series. They <laughs> said, you pick the series. We're not going to even offer it to anybody else until you pick first. And then I could have picked anything. And it, it just, it, that was, that was kind of crushing because I think baseball on radio, if done the right way with the right words, could be just so magical and, 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 and really a challenge uh, to describe the shadows and the light and, uh, picking up the dirt and rubbing it between your hands and digging in at the plate and shaking off a sign if you're on the mound and leaning over with a glance over your left shoulder at first base at the runners now about ten you know ten feet you know all these great things would have been just so fun for a guy that loves radio 
But really, that's the only one. I thought about hockey, but it's too hard to call. Right. I think I, I, even the great voices, the Dan Kellys and uh, and even Emmerich, who Mike Emmerich, who I had the most profound respect for, maybe of any play-by-play guy, does more of a radio call on TV than than a TV call on TV. Um, but I get a sense of what his radio would sound like. Um, I think baseball has a pace to it where you could use great words to describe and you could let it breathe and you could not race through a call, but you could talk about it. You know, the, 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 the ball that is high hit down the right field line. It's drifting, it's drifting and the right fielder looking up into the stands and leaning back and against the wall. You know, you can, I mean, like you could really do yeah. all these great things that other sports, because they happen so fast. I was always infatuated with the Indy 500 car race and the skill of those guys that call that on radio at every turn. And just as a kid, you know, as 10, 11, listening to these, how do they do that? How is it coordinated? How are they able to put that together? And those are the things, I guess, I think golf would be fun. And I, I know people go, you couldn't do golf. You've got too much <laughs> voice. You have too much of gusto. You have too much robust in your call. But I think I could really, I think I could really do a pretty good job. I have confidence in my own ability that when it called for, I could have the tone to describe the setting and do it, TV or radio. But, uh, but that really is it. Maybe, maybe I'll get another baseball chance down the road when my, my when, I don't know if it'll ever happen when I'm not so congested with uh, much-needed family, you know, attention and time, which I, that's number one on every list. But, but uh, maybe it might happen. Maybe it won't. But, you know, you can't have everything in this business. And, listen, I, I put my, on, my, my head on my pillow every night, Michael, probably like you, l- lucky enough to be in this business, to call the games we call, write about the games we write about, work for the people that we respect and feel loyalty from. I mean, that, that's what, to me, this business is about, doing what you've dreamt of your whole life, working for people that are fair and loyal and and are good to you. I mean, what more could what more could I possibly want in this in this world professionally, uh, especially when I've been blessed so much at home with a family and a wife who we've been together for 33 years and still shakes her head and rolls her eyes and goes, <laughs> "Oh my God, how am I even surviving? <laughs> how can I possibly how can I possibly put up with you every every night?" But by the grace of God, she does. So I feel very blessed in that regard, certainly. No, absolutely. And and I can't thank you enough for taking a little over an hour here to chat with me. This was a lot of fun. And, you know, not only just learning about the way you approach your craft, but hearing some of the inside stories, I'm still, you know, sort of kicking over in my mind the idea of Joe Montana in the back of the plane. That was my favorite story, I think, that you told today. But, Kevin, I can't thank you enough for this. Really looking forward to watching and hearing more of your calls from the bubble. So safe travels back to Florida, I think you said this weekend. And uh, hopefully we can do this again at some point down the road, hopefully after a successful NFL season, which is, I think, what we all want. Well, thank you for asking me. What a, what a pleasure to visit. I will tell you that I'm on a lot of these podcasts and interviews, and, and I've, I've enjoyed your questions by far the most. I've, I've, you've, you've gone down um, uh, avenues here that, that I had not gone down before, so I appreciate that. And let, let me to talk about my dad is, is as important for me as anything, and he still is my hero, and so I, I appreciate that. Uh, very much, but uh, wonderful to be on, Michael. I've enjoyed your work for many years. Got to really enjoy it when you're with the uh, Journal Sentinel and covering the Packers for those years you were, and uh, and I look forward to our paths crossing again down the road. I'd enjoy that. So there you have it, a conversation with play-by-play man and sports broadcaster Kevin Harlan 
I really hope you guys enjoyed a lot of those stories. Some of them were just awesome, and you can hear the passion that he explains these stories with and, and the way he just sort of is so excited and enthused about sports. That's what you hear when you see him on television or when you turn Kevin on on the radio. He brings that same passion, that same energy, and that's what makes him you know, one of the best at his craft at this particular moment. I'm still really kind of just laughing over that Joe Montana story. He told both of them, actually, the idea of drinking wine in the back of the plane and listening to two Hall of Fame quarterbacks talk about their trade is, is just fascinating. And then trading bottles of wine at a Kansas City restaurant with Joe Montana and his wife and Kevin Harlan and his wife, it's just... It was some fascinating stuff in there. The the Kevin Garnett stories were amazing. And then obviously, for you Packers fans that are still listening to my podcast, I'm sure you guys really enjoyed his insights into his father, Bob Harlan, and, and how he helped rejuvenate and turn that franchise around after a couple of decades of true stagnation and uh, launching that franchise into a period of you know incredible success that continues through this day from you know Ron Wolf to... Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers to Mike McCarthy and Mike Holmgren and you know now Matt LaFleur hoping he can continue that run as well so again I'm, I'm really thankful for everybody who stuck around to the end of this episode I encourage you to check out our other episodes available on iTunes SoundCloud Stitcher Google Play Apple Podcasts Spotify and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. Don't forget to leave us a star rating, preferably five stars if you like the show. The more ratings we get and the more comments we get, uh, the easier it is for this podcast to grow because we are given better exposure in the iTunes store and various algorithms and things like that. So once again, for everyone who has done it, I really appreciate it, and hopefully some more of you can do the same down the road. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.